Welcome to Expanding the Continuum, a podcast exploring the clinical, ethical, and programmatic issues that emerge when providing HIV care to survivors of violence. We invite luminaries in the field to discuss the real implications of a health sector response to HIV and forms of intimate and patriarchal violence. This podcast is brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Today, Ashley Sly will be talking with her colleagues at NNEDV about survivors' rights to privacy and confidentiality. Thanks for joining us. First and foremost, uh, the goal of the collaboration should be to provide accessible services that center victim privacy and safety. Um, It is a commitment to protecting and upholding the survivor's right to privacy and trusting the survivor to know what is best for them since they have been navigating their safety throughout the abusive relationship. joined by two wonderful advocates from the Safety Net Project at the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Audace Garnett and Corbin Street are both technology safety specialists working at the intersection of privacy, technology, and intimate partner violence. They both provide training and technical assistance on survivor privacy, confidentiality best practices, and technology safety to victim advocates, state coalitions, law enforcement, court officials, legal service providers, and other stakeholders. Welcome, Audace and Corbin. Thanks for being here. Thank Thanks you for having, having us. us. So, Corbin, I'll start with you. Um, tell us a little about the Safety Net Project at the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Sure, I'd love to. At Safety Net, we focus on a few key areas. Uh, we look at how abusers are misusing technology against victims and how advocates can help survivors safety plan around that. We also look at how victims use technology in strategic ways um, to help themselves stay safe and connected to supports. Um, And we help victims increase their privacy so that they can safely relocate uh, when they're trying to escape an abusive situation. And then we also uh, work to teach best practices that help uh, staff at agencies understand how to meet their federal confidentiality obligations. Um, and, and that includes how they use technology, but it goes beyond the technology piece um, into some of the stuff we'll be talking about here today. Great. So, Ades, Corbin just kind of alluded to um, what confidentiality uh, means in terms of grant requirements, but broadly, what does confidentiality mean in the context of the U.S. anti-domestic violence and sexual violence movements? Ashley, that is a really good question. And it's a question that we often get asked by advocates in this movement. And even more so now, um, since many programs have shifted from providing direct services to survivors in person to now providing advocacy online due to the pandemic. So what confidentiality means in the context of the United States anti-domestic violence and sexual assault movement is the responsibility for programs and advocates who are funded by the three federal funders which are VAWA, the Violence Against Women's Act, VOCA, the Victims of Crime Act, or FIPSA, 
the Family Violence Prevention Services Act. That was a mouthful. We call that alphabet soup. Um, but those programs um, who receive that funding must protect all information that survivors have shared with them. And when I say information, I'm referring to any personally identifying information. And we have to think beyond the obvious name, address, and social security number. It could be uh, the type of medication a survivor has been prescribed, uh, the location of an incident, um, the abuser's name, if they have a mental health diagnosis or a chronic illness, even down to the number of children that they have. That is all considered personally identifying information. Um, any information that they have shared should be protected, and this is not about being difficult. Um, you see, access to information that a survivor shares with you can literally be a life and death matter. So we have to be mindful because we can be putting them at risk by sharing that information. And most importantly, Ashley, it's the law. And the law says that programs and advocates have to take protective measures to prevent inadvertent or unlawful disclosure of information being shared with any third party. And that includes law enforcement, child welfare workers, other victim service providers, uh, funders, auditors, vendors. Even if you are a part of a task force or a multidisciplinary team, you just can't share personal information about a survivor because certain information in combination or in context can be identifying. And this is especially true for people whose identities are less common. So we have to keep that in mind. Um, we can't share that information outside of our programs unless the survivor requests it. Um, for if it's shared, um, even with that request, um, it must be an informed, written, and reasonably time-limited release, which means a document that is signed by the survivor that outlines their instructions for how, when, and with whom they want their information shared. Great. Yeah. I think so much of that is important, thinking about, like, the... Um different situations that survivors are coming into contact with, where they live, living in a rural community, and how their confidentiality could be compromised so easily by, like you said, just the number of children that they have. So thank you for sharing that. And you started to kind of briefly touch on um, the pandemic. So how has our view of survivor confidentiality in accessing services uh, changed due to the coronavirus pandemic? Straightforward, there are no changes. Um, there have been no changes at all. And Although we are in a crisis and there may be new pressures and new people that may want information about survivors, we must still uphold our confidentiality standards. Um, we should still scrutinize and challenge any attempts from any outside organizations that want to gain access to the survivor's private information. Um, we all know that this is a vulnerable time and abusers tend to take advantage of vulnerable situations and they can go to various lengths and measures to gain access to that information and it's all to harm survivors. Um, so we have to keep that in mind and also remember that the only time programs can release information about a survivor is when the survivor requests it or when they are required to by a statutory mandate or a valid court order signed by a judge. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and I think one of the, the confidentiality terms that tends to come up when talking with uh, domestic violence advocates is the term HIPAA. Uh, so we hear the term HIPAA or health uh, insurance Portability and Accountability Act thrown around a lot as a standard for confidentiality, but what does HIPAA actually protect? Who does it apply to? Corbin, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So at, at Safety Net, we often have staff at victim service programs reach out to us uh, and, and they bring this up, especially when they're looking for technology they can use to communicate with survivors. Since so much of the tech out there uh, markets itself as being HIPAA compliant, 
Um, we always start those conversations by helping clarify what HIPAA is and what HIPAA is not. Um, so that's what I'm going to do here too. Uh, so HIPAA is a national rule for covered entities. And, and this is a technical term, covered entities. It means specific organizations that are bound by law to follow it. So it's not something that every organization that ever was has to follow. Um, the organizations that have to follow it mostly are healthcare providers that have to share patient information in order to bill for their services um, and communicate about their patients. And, and it also includes health insurance companies, um, medical billing companies, but it's, it's very much in that the medical field. Uh, it is very rare for a victim service organization to be bound by HIPAA, to be considered a covered entity. Um, and this often comes as a surprise, and I think it's because it's such a part of kind of the fabric of healthcare in the United States that anyone who's ever had contact with a medical system is likely to be really familiar with the term. Uh, you know, always being asked to sign consent forms, being handed copies of privacy practices. I just went to the dentist the other day, and I had to sign it again, right? The HIPAA form, which I'm sure everyone reads like really closely, right? Um, but because we're all so familiar with it, just as, as people out in the world, and, and we know that it's connected to privacy, those two factors often kind of add up to, to us thinking it's kind of this national privacy standard. Um, but, but it's not. It's a rule that actually only applies to covered entities. Um, and, and like I said earlier, that, that means a very specific thing. Um, so victim service organizations shouldn't assume that they're covered entities. They should, if, if they think they might be, it's important to work with an attorney to find out if they actually are. Uh, and again, with that caveat that it's extremely rare. Um, and I think the second thing to look at around HIPAA, and, and it comes up a lot, is because we're so familiar with it, um, and it has to do with healthcare, we get the sense that it is an incredibly strong confidentiality standard. Uh, but it's actually a much lower standard uh, than, than the standards that govern victim service work. The VAWA, VOCA, and FIPSA uh, confidentiality standards that Audace mentioned earlier, that alphabet soup she talked about, those are actually much stronger than HIPAA. Um, HIPAA, act, HIPAA allows and really promotes the sharing of private health information. Um, with HIPAA, covered entities are allowed to use and disclose your protected health information without your authorization. Uh, for the purposes of providing treatment um, so that they can get paid, so that they can conduct uh, general health care operations. So those are actually very broad. Um, and, and that's what we're signing when we sign those forms. Um, it, it's absolutely an improvement on the lack of protections that existed before it was put into law, but it still puts an incredible amount of decision-making power in the hands of healthcare providers. They're the ones that get to decide what's in your best interest as a patient. But with VAWA, VOCA, and FIPSA, as Audace talked about, victim service programs are not allowed to share any information a survivor has shared with them, uh, unless that survivor has provided that specific and informed consent, or there's a law or a court order that compels that organization to share it. Um, and so it's a much more strict standard um, and, and that's without considering that some states and territories also have advocate privilege, uh, which tightens those protections even more. So when we, when we hear about HIPAA, when we see, uh, you know, HIPAA compliant and all of these terms, we need to, to kind of slow down and not take that as a given that it means it's going to be secure enough, it's going to be private enough uh, for it to work for victim service providers. Yeah, and I think, 
you know, uh, what kind of the challenges of, of working between these two fields, domestic violence and HIV fields, is those differing confidentiality requirements, right? Um, HIV organizations are going to have to abide by, by HIPAA versus DV organizations have these really strong standards around VAWA, VOCA, and FIPSA. So, um, Audace, what should domestic violence organizations be considering regarding survivor confidentiality when starting a partnership with an HIV organization? Yeah, well, Ashley, that's that's another great question. All of these questions are wonderful um, because partnerships are great. Um, however, partnerships do not mean that we violate our confidentiality obligation. Um, first and foremost, uh, the goal of the collaboration should be to provide accessible services that center victim privacy and safety. Um, it is a commitment to protecting and upholding the survivor's right to privacy and trusting the survivor to know what is best for them since they have been navigating their safety throughout the abusive relationship. Uh, so what domestic violence organizations should be considering regarding survivor confidentiality when starting a partnership with an HIV organization is making sure that everyone knows and understands these obligations. For example, all advocates at your program should know that survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking do not need to disclose their HIV status in order to receive services. And the collaboration partners should recognize that survivors retain the right to choose what personal information to share with the collaboration um, and its individual partners and agencies as well. And that includes the choice of which partners within the collaboration get access to that information at all stages throughout the time that they are working together. Um, another consideration should be where will survivor data and information be stored if you're sharing a space, right? Uh, we want to be mindful that we do not share file cabinets, computers, uh, cell phones, or cloud storage with the partner agencies that we're collaborating with uh, because we do not want to place a survivor's data or personal information and put it at risk. Um, so those are a few things that should be considered and always remember that the only one who gets to decide what is shared is the survivor. Yeah, I think that's so um, critical to the, the conversation around uh, partnerships is making sure the survivor is in control of, of their own narrative and their story and what happens to the information that they share with us. Um, it's it's such an important piece of, of not just our partnership, but the relationships we're building with, with survivors we're working with and individuals living with HIV. So thank you for that, Audace. Um, Corbin, to ensure confidentiality is protected on both sides of the partnerships, what should organizations include um, in agreements or what policies should be in place? I Audace kind of alluded to this, but what else um, do you think would be important? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there are so many communities out there creating innovative partnerships to help victims, uh, organizations that are collaborating in ways they hope are going to better support survivors. And, and we love the idea of HIV organizations collaborating with victim service um, organizations um, and, and there are a lot of ways, different ways that this can look, that the way these partnerships can look, sometimes they're co-located in the same building. Oftentimes they have their own separate buildings and sometimes an advocate will go to that other organization uh, and go there certain days a week. But so there, there are different ways to look at it and, and the agreements are gonna shift based really on, on what that design is. But I'll start by echoing, you know, what Audace told us. You can't, you can't hear this too many times. It is, it's so important that you start by those organizations talking to each other and really getting that solid understanding um, for each organization's unique confidentiality obligations and, and come to an agreement that those obligations will be respected um, and followed in the partnership. And, and we see sometimes in other collaborations, you know, partners 
uh, get a little upset because a victim service organization uh, can't share, won't share uh, specific information about victims. But I think sometimes as, you know, getting to the spirit of why these confidentiality obligations exist can be really helpful um, when, when it feels like, you know, there are secrets being kept or, or one organization is frustrated. Um, and and the, the spirit of VAWA, FIPS, and VOCA is really about the safety of survivors. Uh, the, uh, the location of a victim getting in the hands of the wrong person can quickly become a life and death situation for a survivor. And that is why it's important that it's always the survivor who gets to decide what information is shared with them. So I always just encourage, you know, it's not just because we're following rules or because the laws are there. Those are, those are really important, but at the end of the day, it's the survivor's safety uh, it, that, that drives the spirit of these. Um, and what's important to remember here is that there aren't any forms or policies that can be created that will, that will change these confidentiality obligations. You, you can't create an agreement that breaks your confidentiality obligations. We get questions about this a lot. Folks call in asking um, if they can create a confidentiality agreement uh, between two different organizations that kind of acts as blanket permission for staff at each program to share openly with each with each other, kind of like they become colleagues. But that's, but that's absolutely just not possible with the way that uh, VAWA, FIPSA, and VOCA confidentiality obligations work. Um, those organizations are not allowed to put blanket policies into place like that. So each and every time they share information outside of their organization, uh, it can only be at the request of the survivor. So the policies and agreements that, that need to be put in place are, are ones that lay out and acknowledge those those different legal and ethical obligations that both organizations have, um, and any exceptions to those obligations. So, so it's a it's important to consult with attorneys uh, and other folks who have subject matter expertise uh, in the rules and obligations of each field, and then and then to develop policies and agreements that take each of those organizations' obligations into account. Um, as far as specific documents go, you know you'll definitely want a memorandum of understanding that, that details each partner's roles and responsibilities within the collaboration. Um, you'll always want to make sure you have a confidentiality and privacy policy for the partnership that lays out rules around information sharing and confidentiality protections. Um, and, and we've got a great template MOU and uh, privacy and confidentiality policy in our confidentiality toolkit at techsafety.org that folks are welcome to use as a, a starting point, um, or they can reach out to us uh, at, at safetynet at nnedv.org um, if they want to talk in more detail about that or get copies of them. Um, and then if if your organizations are going to share space, uh, you know, and Audace referenced this earlier, the, the other policies that should be in place are, are ones that, that lay out how to share physical space how to secure paper and electronic files um, and information so that, again, uh, each organization's confidentiality obligations are being followed. And then any um, equipment access or ownership agreements um, that, that follow those unique obligations of each field should also be in place. Great. Um, this is so helpful. And thank you so much for sharing those resources. I was going to ask if you had any resources that would be great for people to take a look at afterwards. So, um, that's wonderful. So 
kind of to wrap things up, what are, um, for each of you, what is one major thing you want people to take away from this when they're considering, you know, the partnership between a domestic violence and an HIV organization? Um, I would have to say, uh, be survivor-centered. Um, always put the needs and the safety of the survivor first, allow them to lead, and trust that they know what is best for them and for their safety, period. Yeah, and I absolutely echo echo Audace. I think um, the runner-up in that, what I would add to that uh, is, you know, we talked a lot about agreements and policies, but I think one last thing I want to add is, like, is how to carry that message to everyone in the partnership, right? Training uh, staff on, on both sides of the partnership, um, making sure to inform the people that are coming to you for services about the details of that partnership, you know, keeping these conversations alive so that the work culture reflects the spirit of those rules. Um, you know, the longer a partnership happens, the, the more bonding happens across the organizations, and it can be easy for privacy or confidentiality to kind of slip because these are, you know, they're, they're your colleagues. Uh, maybe they become friends, but, but creating that culture of respect for survivor privacy, um, regardless of the bonds between the organizations is really crucial and critical. And I think that happens best through, through trainings and through kind of always reinforcing this uh, as the partnership goes on, reinforcing that culture. Wonderful. You both have brought us all such important information to consider and um, a lot of information for organizations to really dig into when they're considering uh, these partnerships and working with survivors and people with li- living with HIV. So thank you both so much for joining us. Um, Corbin, I know we'll get to chat with you on a future podcast on medical surveillance and contact tracing. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, so yeah, thank you all again. And, and uh, we look forward to working together. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ashley. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to Expanding the Continuum, brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. If you like our show and want to know more about addressing the intersections of HIV and intimate partner violence, visit us online at ipvhealth.org and nnedv.org. See you next time.